All right, so today is the uh, last day of catechism for the school year, and it looks like we're going to finish up uh, the Heidelberg's exposition of the Apostles' Creed. That's a good place to stop uh, for the school year, and then we'll pick up in the fall. Um, This fall, we actually have something uh, kind of special planned. Um, Dr. Glumsrud and I, uh, we have a video series that we want to show on the Reformation, since uh, October will be the, you know, the 500th anniversary of when historians have classically uh, looked at the beginning of the Reformation. And so we have a, a series of videos that we want to present on the Reformation, and it's told by both Protestants and Catholics. And I think this will be good, because you know, a lot of times it's easy when you just watch stuff that you, you already agree with. And if that's all you do, then you never learn how to really be critical and think outside the box, and you don't really grow or learn. And so it's important for us to also listen to the other side, and then we'll have discussion. And, um, you know, and I'm confident enough on the, the solas of the Reformation that uh, I think this will be good for our congregation. And uh, so we'll do that in the fall, and I think people will uh, enjoy that a lot. But we're going to conclude today our our series on the Heidelberg Catechism for the school year. And that brings us to Lord's Day uh, 22. Yeah, Lord's Day 22. Okay, is everybody there? Lord's Day 22. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word that we've heard. We thank you for the challenge and the command that you give to Christian parents, but also, Lord, the confidence that we have that your gospel is at work and that you are ultimately in control. And Lord, we submit ourselves to you and ask again, Father, for your grace. Instruct us now in the faith as we consider what we confess together as your people. For this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, Lord's Day 22, questions 57 and 58. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but even my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Okay, so the, the creed, again, we think about the, all, each line of the creed that the Heidelberg has gone through. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, gives explanation of that, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, on and on it goes. Now we get to the last two lines, resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And these are important for us to consider. Resurrection of the body really is our great hope. It's our blessed hope. There's all kinds of things we hope for in the world, right? We hope for our circumstances to get better. Uh, You know, we hope for lots of things. Um, Better weather, uh, you know, uh, we hope that our communities will improve. We hope that uh, our nation will improve in certain ways, uh, you know, and there's all kinds of things that we can have hope for, but none of them are a blessed hope. 
the blessed hope, the living hope, is the resurrection of the body. Because your true homeland is uh, not the United States of America or whatever country you have citizenship in. Uh, your true homeland is the, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the, the promised land. And we will only enter into the, the new earth as, as resurrected, glorified people. And so we want to think a little bit about this. I was just talking with Betty before the, uh, the class um, about what we call the intermediate state. And we've talked about this before in class, but since it's um, presenting itself in the Heidelberg, once again, it's good for us to go over. There's a lot of confusion amongst Christians about the, the, inter, the intermediate state. Oh, look, I'm writing the immediate state. <clears throat> the intermediate state. Uh, what are we talking about here? So we're talking about This is you, and every person has two parts. What are those two parts? Body and soul. Soul is also called spirit in, in Scripture. Soul and spirit, same thing. Um, suke, numas. It, you can go through the Bible and find they're used interchangeably. Uh, but body, soma, is uh, the flesh, the, this. Not the flesh as a sinful category, but rather um, your physical body, all of your organs and, and everything. Now, Christ has redeemed all of this. It, it's, a, it's, an, it's a Gnostic idea or a Platonic idea, that is a non-Christian idea, that the body doesn't matter. Absolutely the body matters. The earth matters. Matter matters. As C.S. Lewis said, God loves matter, he invented it. He's the, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he called it good. And God became a man, and he still is a man, with organs, blood, all of that. And he will forever be a man. And our redemption, although the work has been completed for our redemption through the finished work of Jesus Christ, it has not yet been fully applied to us. Uh, you have been justified now, that is, pronounced righteous by the Father, declared righteous by the Father because the Son's righteousness has been credited to you, you are progressively being sanctified, which goes on in your life until death. Okay? Sanctification. But then when you die, there's a little gravestone. Look at that. True art. Rip. Little gravestone, see? Flower on your grave. Tulip, of course. Uh, uh, when you die, your sanctification is done. In other words, there's nothing left in your soul to be sanctified. And uh, if you don't go to a purgatory to be further sanctified. Sanctification is complete at this point. But what happens? Body is laid to rest. There's you. Six feet under. And soul goes to be with the Lord. 
And what does the soul look like? It's like a gassy bubble. I could totally sell heresy to you guys. You do not fight back. I could totally sell heresy. If I had a really good Welsh accent, you'd all buy it. My goodness, does the soul look like a gassy bubble? No. Sometimes I'm just checking to see if you're all awake. Or if I could just lead you to say, we're having Kool-Aid in the kitchen. Who's going to follow me? Put on your Nikes and your white robes. We're going to wait for the UFO. Okay. What does the soul look like? Sure we know what it looks like. It doesn't look like anything. It has nothing. There's no material being. There's nothing to it. There's no evidence that there is anything. That the soul is immaterial. Now that's mysterious. And there's a lot here that we're not going to, uh, to find answers for. Uh, you know, the Bible it isn't there just to satisfy all our curiosity. And if we're looking for satisfaction of our curiosity, we're usually going to end up in false teaching, some kind of condemned heresy. So we've got we to be able to stop where the text stops, but also affirm what the text affirms. And not deny it just because we can't understand it completely. You know, there's people who've denied the Trinity because they can't fully comprehend it, yet it's clearly taught in Scripture. And so on and so forth. The Scriptures clearly teach that we are both body and soul, but it, it makes it very clear that the soul is the immaterial you. So you have two parts. You have your immaterial self and your material self. Your body is who you are apart from your soul, and your soul is who you are apart from your body. That's about the best way you can explain it. But you are both. One is not more important than the other. Both have been redeemed because Christ assumed both. Christ was both body and soul. Heresies like uh, Docetism said he didn't really have a body. Heresies like Apollinarianism said he didn't really have a soul. Christ had both. He's redeemed both for you. Death is the separation of soul and body. And this is where things sometimes get a little confusing. This is what we call the intermediate state. But it shouldn't be confusing. It, it's, it really isn't confusing if um, we understand what we're confessing and what those scriptures teach. So what does Paul say in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if we want to turn there briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Actually, we can even start at, um, in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. In verse 16, he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self... Okay, the body. You have your out again. You have your outer self and your inner self, and they are both you. You can't say that's really you, one or the other. It's both. And if you only say it's you, one or the other, that is a condemned heresy. It is both. You have your outer self and your inner self. So Paul says, though our outer self, that is the body, is wasting away. Our inner self, that is the soul, is being renewed day by day. Talking about this, sanctification. 
So even though I'm getting old and it hurts a little bit now when I get out of bed in the morning, um, my inner self is being renewed day by day. Uh, for this light momentary affliction, that is the whole life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's talking about something far beyond over here. Something that we're looking forward to. As we look not to the things that are seen, body, but to gassy bubbles. The things that are unseen. Unseen. So we don't see yet the resurrection. We don't see yet the, the new heavens, the new earth. We don't see yet glory. Okay, but we, we behold these things by faith. We trust in God's promises that these things are coming. And we have reason to believe that they're coming because God has always fulfilled his promises throughout redemptive history. For the things that are seen, body, are transient, that is temporal, But the things that are unseen, that is, those things that God has promised, are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, what's he talking about? The body, right. The tent that is our earthly home, the body, if it is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now think of the comparison, tent and building. Tent and building. And the Jews knew about this comparison because of the tabernacle, and then it was transformed to the temple. So, um, you know, living in a tent is better than nothing, but clearly living in a building is better than living in a tent. And uh, so he's making a comparison here with regard to your body as it now is in this life, a tent. And for some of us, our tents are a little weathered. You know, they got a few holes in them. And, uh, but there's a building, something that is better, that is yet to come. Uh, if we know, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay, in other words, God has prepared this for us. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. That is, not be a disembodied spirit forever and ever. For while we are still in this tent, in other words, while soul and body are still together, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. Okay, now this is really important. So we groan, right? We're looking for something better. And as we get older, we groan more. Not that we would just, the soul would, would leave the body, okay? Like uh, Plato said. You know, Plato is the philosopher who lived before the time of Christ, who basically believed that all that was material was evil and from a, a, a lower form of being, and all that is immaterial is better and from a, a higher form of being, and that you know we're in these bodies and um, the body is basically just this carcass that you've got to lug around, feed, you know, it, it scratch when it itches, you know, you have to go to the bathroom, you got to do all these things that are just inconvenient. And the, he, he said, you know, the, the soul needs to escape the prison house of the body. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not that we would just be naked, that is, without a body. 
That's not our hope. Our hope is not that the soul is free and you're like, oh yeah, get rid of that body, away with it, because it was full of disease and racked with pain. Well, of course, we're, we're, we're grateful that no one's in pain. Lenore was in a ton of physical pain before she died. And we're grateful that she's no longer in pain. But, you know, that's not the completion of redemption. The completion of redemption isn't soul flew off from the body. Now, that does happen, but that's what we call the intermediate state. It's not the final state. The final state is over here. Isn't that beautiful, listening to those children sing? Um... The final state is yet to come. So Paul goes on, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He's talking about this. Now, heavenly, remember, doesn't necessarily mean high up in the sky somewhere, but it's talking about the age to come in the consummation. When it's fully consummated, it's broken in on part in the, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and now we are already united with Christ, but it comes in its full consummation when Christ returns on the last day. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, disembodied spirit forever, but that we would be further clothed, resurrected, so that what is mortal, okay, this body that is now subject to death, may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the fact that you are convicted of sin, the fact that you long to be with the Lord, the fact that you want to follow Christ, is evidence of the fact that you will be raised from the dead one day. And the fruits of the Spirit are like prophecies of what God will do completely for you on the last day when you are raised from the dead. Uh, verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, right now, we are away from the Lord. In other words, the soul and body are together, and we are not in the presence of our ascended Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, verse 8, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So for the soul to be away from the body, according to the Apostle Paul, is to be home with the Lord. Now that's why we often say things like, you know, Lenore went home to be with the Lord. And it's not improper to say that. You know, the Lord called her out of this life. But we have to understand that she doesn't have her resurrected body yet. She doesn't have the building. When does the building come? Well, Scripture tells us that very clearly in, in lots of other places. So in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to just turn over there to the letter that Paul wrote to the same church earlier, he talks about the resurrection, which they were denying at the time. The Corinthians had adopted this idea that the soul flies off from the body and that's it. That's the final state. And sadly, a lot of Christians think that. A lot of Christians think that that's the final state. But it's not. It's the soul goes to be home 
with the Lord when it is away from the body. But we are awaiting that day when Christ returns and brings with him all those who sleep in Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, So 1 Corinthians 15, this whole chapter about the resurrection, I'll just read this one little part here. Verse 20, in in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, the first fruits. In other words, Christ is already raised from the dead, but the harvest hasn't yet come. Uh, For as by a man came death, that is the first Adam, by a man, the second Adam, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all, that is, all in Christ, be made alive. But, look at this is the key. But each in his own order, verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, so Christ has already been raised from the dead, is already body and soul again. Then at his coming, those who belong in Christ. So the resurrection doesn't happen until Christ returns. Uh, from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 23. Yeah. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So it's at the coming that soul and body are brought back together. Now that would be an awful thought if we didn't understand that the body is to be glorified because it's not going to be a zombie or a corpse, um, but rather it's going to be a resurrected, glorified body. Not a resuscitated body, but a resurrected body. Then, notice what he says. Um, What happens then when Christ returns? Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. By the way, no mention of a rapture, no mention of a thousand-year millennial reign, no mention of any of that stuff um, that we find in dispensationalism. Also, did you notice, too, that the Heidelberg Catechism never talks about that? Never talks about rapture, never talks about a millennial reign? Neither does the, the Apostles' Creed. Why is that? How come the Heidelberg doesn't talk about that? That's exactly right, because John Nelson Darby wasn't living, because it's a recent heresy. Yeah, we might call it a, a conservative heresy. There's a lot of those. Um, it's heterodox. You know, it hasn't actually been condemned by the church, but I get, I, I, I'm picking up what you're laying down, as we used to say. Um, the, uh, the, yeah, because dispensationalism didn't, wasn't, wasn't invented until the late 1800s. And so all that rapture, left behind stuff, that's all new. And uh, the, the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism, reformers, they knew nothing about that. You know why? Because the apostles knew nothing about it. Because Jesus knew nothing about it. It's not, it, you never find them ever talking about rapture or Mark of the Beast or uh, any of that stuff. It all comes from visions that John had on Patmos that are misinterpreted. Anywho, the, uh, this is what we want to understand as our hope. When we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, we are saying that I believe that I will arrive here at last. But from the time you die, 
until this day, we call that the intermediate state. And there's a lot of mystery there. Paul talks about it as well in Philippians 1. You know, uh, when he says to depart and be with the Lord. So the scripture is very clear that when a Christian dies, your inner self, not your outer self, but your inner self, goes to be with the Lord. Your conscious, immaterial being goes to be with the Lord. Your outer self goes in the ground. And the two come back together at the final installment and application of your redemption. And this is your true and final home. Your home at last. And where is that? That's on earth. This is planet earth. And who will be there? Jesus. And you will see him face to face. Because he's a man. This is basic Christianity 101, and it's been lost off of uh, the confession of Christians. Largely because of people like John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield and all the dispensationalists that followed. And uh, it hasn't made the church better in, in America. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's very, it's very, the Bible's very quiet about that. Basically, all it talks about, as Paul says, is it's far better to be absent from the body and to be with the Lord. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 1. So what do we know about it? We just know that, we know that there's no death, there's no sin there, uh, and that it's, it's got to be joy, joyful, and Paul says it's better to be there. But it's not the, it's not the final state. Well, no, second and third heaven is, um, that's just a Jewish reference. They, they looked at the heavens as having three, three levels. So if a, if a boy throws a ball into the air, that's the first heaven. He threw it up into the heavens. And then the second heaven would be, you know, oh, did you see the stars last night? They're beautiful. And then the third heaven would be the presence of the Lord. Yeah. And Christ ascended into heaven. And there, too, there's mystery. Like, you know, what path did he take? Did he... How did that work? You know, there's a lot of mystery there. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's, Luke, yeah, that, that, we have to remember that's a parable that Jesus is giving, and all the parables are descriptions of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing there is he's not giving us a systematic theology about the intermediate state. A lot of Christians misunderstand that. Every single parable that Jesus teaches is about the reality of the kingdom of God as it now exists and then what it will be one day. And there, it's always taught in a parabolic form. Um, and so with that parable, uh, he's, he's taught, the, the point that he's trying to make there, again, is not 
an embodied state or disembodied state or that there's a gulf between, but rather that you need to hear the word of the king now and not end up like this guy who wanted people to go back and tell his family and his brothers. And he says that they already have Moses and the prophets. And in other words, the point of the parable is hear the gospel, hear the king now and repent. And, uh, but yeah, he says, reach out your finger and touch it on my, I mean, it's just, a, it's just an image that Jesus is giving. That's all he's doing. No. No, because if that's, if that's, well, I mean, if that's the case, he says, reach out your finger and put it on my tongue. He wouldn't have a tongue because of, when Paul is giving us the epistles, he's giving us straightforward, systematic teaching that's addressing issues. He, and, and so when he says that to be absent from the body... To be, he's talking about soul and body. And so if we try to use the parable of Luke 16, of Abraham's bosom, then now we've got a conflict in Scripture. But that's only because we've misunderstood or we've, we've, we're, trying to re, we're reading too much into a parable that wasn't even designed to tell us about the intermediate state. So. Yeah, sure. It's a place of suffering, and it's not good. So, well, sure, but we don't want to read too much into it. Yeah, we always got to ask, what's the point of the parable? Same thing like with the prodigal son. Um, the point isn't that. Well, if you have a repentant child, you, you, have, you have to go kill a cow. And you have to put a ring on the finger. Um, and there's actually people who've done stuff, who like, try to read the Bible like that. They've totally missed the point. In fact, it's not even telling us anything about parenting. Nothing at all. It's telling us about uh, God, the Father, is receiving these people who are scoundrels, who Jesus was eating with. People always, like on the parable of the prodigal son, I rarely meet a Christian who even knows the context of that parable. You just read a few verses before. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. And Pharisees are saying, how dare he do that? And so he's explaining, by those three parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, the Father's love in receiving back people who once were lost. And that's the point. Every parable has one point. A point about, so yeah, you might find little glimpses and pieces here, but we've got to be really careful that we don't try to systematize those things. That's, that's where we get dangerous. So re, and remember, too, that the Gospels tell us what happened. And the, and the epistles say, here's what it means. The epistles are explanations, because they come later after the Gospels. And so Paul is telling us that this is what we mean when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So upon death, you know, this is what's happened. And it is sad. And this is why, honestly, um, open caskets are a beautiful thing. It's a crime, in my opinion, that the funeral industry has jacked up the prices so much on these things and made it um, uh, so expensive just to bury somebody today. It doesn't, because God is able to, either way, the body's going to disintegrate you know, everything's going to deteriorate, and God is able to gather all the molecules back. But that's a, that's a fair question people ask. But it, it, there is something wonderful, 
are important, maybe not wonderful is the best word, but important, I think, in the ancient practice of burial of a whole body and of viewing that body. Yeah, I know it makes us wince, but you know what? We've got to stare, stare death in the face. And our kids need to stare it in the face. And it's been the, it's been the post-war generation that has got, gotten away from that. Because it used to be the, the, the graveyards were everywhere. And now you can't find them in a community anymore. They're way on the outskirts of town. And they're certainly not on the side of, of churches. And we try to sanitize death. Well, death is coming for you. And you've got to be ready. And our kids need to be ready. And our hope is in the resurrection of the body. Not in trying to just think happy thoughts and let's just say he passed and not even use that, the D word. Uh, there's something really good about having the body. And they still do this in many Mediterranean cultures where they will, they'll bring the body home after it's prepared and they leave it with an open casket in the living room. And uh, Vincenzo knows what I'm talking about. And the whole family weeps and mourns for a few days. And then they bury the body. Uh, because our hope is in what? The resurrection of the body. But see, Americans, we're too smart for that. You know, we think, well, you know, let's, let's forget about death. Let's not talk about it. Let's just have a good time. And rather, we need to have our hope set in the right thing. You know, it's fine to hope for, you know, good weather, good economy, you know, good season for your favorite baseball team, all that stuff. But what is it in the end? You know, what's most important is the hope in the, that we have in the resurrection, is that we're going to be here, and Christ has earned that for us. And one of the things that preaches that most loudly is this, death. That's why you have psalms like Psalm 49. Psalm 49 is a good psalm. Ecclesiastes is a good book. And it confronts us with the reality of death that we all have to deal with. Great question. So what, is, you know, what do we find? There's enough in Scripture that tells us that on the last day, as Jesus says, some will be raised to everlasting life, some will be raised to death. And, and, and then Scripture fills that out, that there is uh, eternal punishment, not just in soul, but in body. It's an awful place, body and soul. And, I mean, and there's where you can take parables, like, Parable 16. And yeah, you get, like you said, T, there's like little glimpses and pieces. We just have to handle that very carefully and understand the genre of the literature. So part of our hope is that we'll cease from sinning. Right. What, what is sinning? There will be, God will not allow any sin. There will be no sin. Yeah, the unbeliever will not have the privilege of sinning once in all of hell, for all of eternity. It'll be a holy place. It'll be completely holy. It is not a big lake where the devil is in charge and the Rolling Stones are having a concert. It is going to be a place of weeping, gnashing, suffering, and it will be completely and utterly holy. There will be no sin, but there will be suffering. There can be holiness and suffering. God will be glorified in that. And there's things that we say, well, how does it? I know someone's probably going to ask, but how is it going to be wonderful for us if we know all these people are suffering? Because you will be so sanctified that you will be able to rejoice in the holiness of the Lord, even in the punishment of evil and, and wickedness. Now, it's hard for us to get our minds around that right now, but that's because we're not fully sanctified. 
and, and we will be sanctified on that day. There's an, yeah, there's enough in Scripture to say that there will be, but it will not be to glory. And it's not a hope. It's a death sentence. And so whatever resurrection they experience, it will be both body and soul, and it will be a resurrection. It will be a, a body fit for punishment. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible thought. happens on the, yeah, on the last day. When Christ returns, yeah. Well, yeah, there's enough in Scripture that's been debated over time about that when a non-believer dies, the soul goes to a place of punishment, just as the soul of a believer goes to heaven. Now, we got to be careful there. You know, we don't want to say, oh, that's Abraham's bosom. Well, no, that's actually, you're taking that out of context from Luke 16. And it's fair enough to say, yeah, hell. The body goes to hell. Because what is hell? Hell is a place of God's wrath, his holy wrath, unmitigated. But it's going to be even worse in the final state because it will be body and soul. And so when that happens, when Christ returns, and think about what, what Scripture teaches us, it's going to, it, there are two things are going to happen. There's going to be final deliverance of those who are righteous, have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and eternal destruction of those who do not. So Paul says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, okay, talking about the last day here, uh, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord, in other words, the communion of the Lord, and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And Paul says this elsewhere, and so do the Gospels. That's Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Yeah. Yeah, if you ever get somebody who says, I don't believe in hell, take them right to Second Thessalonians 1. And say, look, I don't, like, I don't like hell. I think anybody who likes hell is twisted. And here's something else, Christian. If you're in this congregation, this is something that I want to make really clear. It really sticks in my craw. You know, I saw somebody, not in this congregation, but a friend of mine, somebody I know, was talking about how he's happy that the Manchester bomber is in hell. You know, I don't think that we can ever say, we shouldn't be talking that way. We can talk about, you know, because God does not delight in in that kind of attitude. And, And we also have to be really careful about saying whether somebody is in hell or not in hell. We just have to say, you know what, I know this that the righteous, those who, who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, will not go to hell. But everybody else deserves it. And we shouldn't be talking about you know, how we delight in somebody going to hell. Or, yeah, that person's in hell. I don't stand in judgment over their soul, and neither do you. God does. And it's only because if somebody bore the punishment that we deserve that we won't be in hell. 
And so what we say, you know, when my son says, you know, Dad, who's in hell? I don't say, oh, here, son, I have a list of people. Because none of us have that list. We just say, honey, anybody who's outside of Christ. And, well, is Hitler in hell? Is Saddam Hussein in hell? And all you can say is, if he died outside of Christ. You have no authority to say, yes, this person for sure. And your Uncle Joe. You can't talk that way. You don't have that authority. All we can say is if they died outside of Christ. How do, we, how do you know that Saddam Hussein, as the noose was being get, put around his neck, didn't repent and believe? Do you know? Do you know for sure? Of course not, because you're not God. So easy on the keys on social media. We've got to be really cautious here when we're talking about the wrath of the living God. We need to be better than that and more mature than that. And please, knock it off. It's unbecoming of saints to speak that way. We should be known for our love for sinners and bringing the gospel out, not our delight in the destruction of people this side of the consummation. Sure, well, that's right. We need to be, as we pray, thy kingdom come, every time we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that this will happen. That's what we're praying for. We're not praying for um, Republican control of the Congress forever and ever. Well, you know, um, that's not what we're praying for. What we're praying for is for Christ to return. And then we know when he comes, he's coming with a sword, just as Israel had a sword when it went into Canaan. And it was slaughter. And that means that until, until that day, we've got work to do. And it's not, oh, I'm glad that person's in hell. I'm glad that person's in hell. You cannot speak that way. You cannot. You have no authority to speak that way. What we have to do, rather, is what Jesus told us to do and make disciples. And it's that long, slow process that we saw begin today with little Alice, water in a little place, and she enters into the life of discipleship. And we're still in that school. And we need to see others brought into that school as well. All right, we have one minute to do the next one. Because this is the last day of, not the last day of the Perusia, but the last day of Sunday school for the school year. Um, where am I? My page turned. Ah, verse 58, verse 58, question 58, how does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? As I experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life, perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no man has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Now, loved ones, look, that begins, it begins in part now, right? Knowing that we are in Christ. A blessedness. No matter what's in your bank account, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, you are in Christ. No matter what kind of physical problems you have, 
you are in Christ. That is a joy that cannot be removed. That continues. It increases here because you're free from sin and it will be consummate here in the life everlasting, in your final home, planet Earth glorified with Jesus because anywhere apart from Jesus is not heaven. And that's what we, we confess when, when we say, I believe in the life everlasting. We're talking about the resurrection. And it, it's good sometimes when we talk about heaven to just say the resurrection. I will see them again in the resurrection. Because a lot of times if we say, I'll see them again in heaven, people don't know if we're talking about the intermediate state or the final state. Because this is heaven as it is now, but then heaven's going to be brought down on planet Earth, which will be our final home. And, uh, and it used to be yeah, that, that uh, you know, the church in ages past would often speak of the resurrection. And, and uh, when they said heaven, that's the understood that that ultimately is what it was. And it will be a place of blessing, a place free. The, the, the Bible describes it as being a place free from suffering, free from evil, free from want, free from frustration. It will never be boring. It'll be a place where you work and use your talents and your gifts free from sin to the glory of God and you'll find full satisfaction in that and you will serve others. It'll it'll be a whole network of people living, working, resting, playing, rejoicing and you'll always want more of God and he will give you more. And you will want more and he'll give you more. And you will increase in knowledge of God for all eternity. This is is the, the picture that, that Scripture paints of heaven, not a boring place that, you know, is, ah, I really like it here on earth. <laughs> heaven is going to be on earth, and earth is going to be great. And that is ultimately our home and our hope. And, and that's what we need to do as Christians is, is make that hope known to a hopeless world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the creed, and we thank you for the catechism that summarize very neatly and and helpfully the things that you have revealed in your inspired and authoritative word. And help us, O Lord, we pray, to be people who confess the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, and to have hope in these things, and to give others hope, and to spread the good news about hope for the hopeless in Jesus Christ. For this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.